Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15 this morning. You can find it on page 914 in the Bibles provided in the pews. This morning, we come to Luke's historical record of Stephen's arrest. Stephen, who first appeared on the scene last week in verses 1 through 7, as he was appointed and affirmed by the apostles and the church to to oversee and administrate the church's service to the needy within their community. Stephen, who in chapter 7 is about to die as the first martyr for the Christian faith. Stephen appears in the book of Acts for just moments. I mean, he's literally here and gone. He's not one of the apostles, and yet Luke devotes two significant chapters to Stephen. And you have to kind of ask yourself why. I mean, eight of the apostles are never even mentioned by name. You got Matthias, who's mentioned in chapter one, just briefly. We don't know anything other uh, about Matthias other than what we read there in chapter one. You got James, who is only mentioned in chapter 12 at his death. John, the apostle John, is only mentioned a, a couple of times. And really, all you're left with is, is Peter and Paul. But yet, Luke devotes two whole chapters to Stephen. Stephen gives the longest recorded sermon in Acts. Always got to point that out, right? You know? And so if you thought that Peter or Paul were long-winded, I mean, he stands up and he gives us an overview, a rundown of Israel's entire history. So talk about long-winded. And so, why Stephen? I mean, why does Luke throw this spotlight on him? Well, you know, you might say, well, you know, Luke is just giving a general chronology of the church. He's just kind of telling the story of the early church. And, and here's Stephen. He's the first martyr for the Christian faith. So obviously, Luke talks about him. Poor Stephen. Poor Stephen gave his life for faith in Christ. Or you might say, well, you know, perhaps Luke wants to show us the rise of persecution against the church, just as he has for the last two chapters. We see it escalating. We see it building. It started with just a warning, and then it was a beating, and now it's about to be a death. But then you have to ask, well, then why the sermon? Why does Luke, if he's focusing on persecution, why is he so concerned about telling us what those who are being persecuted actually said. And he does it every single time. And if the focus was on the preaching and teaching, even in the face of persecution, why didn't Luke just stick with the 12 apostles? Because no doubt they faced plenty of hostility. There were many stories that, that Luke could have included that he didn't, but he chose to tell this story. And if the church is to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, then why are you focusing on this really, really, really long sermon from Stephen? So again, I ask, why Stephen? You see... When it comes to theological histories, when, like, like the book of Acts here, we have to make 
very careful, very wise deductions. Why did Luke give so much attention to Stephen? It was because Stephen serves as an example of what it means to bear witness to Christ by living for, speaking for, and even dying for Christ. Luke's account of Stephen challenges three common lies within the Christian faith today, right? Lie number one, I can live for Christ any way that I want. That living for Christ is self-defined. Lie number two, that I will never have to face what Jesus faced. And lie number three, if I did, I would be a horrible witness. Three very common lies that we are prone to believe that are confronted by this account of Stephen. Stephen shows us what it means to faithfully bear witness in the power of the Holy Spirit to the mission of Christ. We, we don't simply bear witness. I hope you understand. We don't simply bear witness in those few moments when we happen to be sharing the gospel with somebody or in those moments when, when we kind of go public with our faith and actually tell people that we profess to believe in, in Christ. We bear witness for Christ by living for Christ, by speaking for Christ, and if necessary, even dying for Christ. And what I mean by living for, speaking for, and dying for is that living for Christ is living as Christ. Speaking for Christ is believing and speaking as Christ did, and dying for Christ is dying as Christ. Because the reason why they would kill you is because they want to kill him. And so... We're going to see this over the next three sermons. There's just too much to deal with. I mean, his, his sermon alone is just way too long for this long-winded preacher to preach on his long-winded sermon. So, uh, so we, we, we're going to look at each of those in turn, living for Christ, speaking for Christ, and dying for Christ. And this is what it means to bear witness to Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look specifically at what it means to live for Christ, When we give our lives to Christ, we give our whole lives to Christ, not just part of it, but the whole thing. And so living for Christ means living as Christ, and living as Christ even if we have to face hostility, and we will, but yet we can do that. We can stand as faithful witnesses even in the midst of suffering because God gives us the strength and the power to do so. And so what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, is that living for Christ means living as Christ, even in the face of hostility, according to the grace that God supplies. Living for Christ means living as Christ, even in the face of hostility, according to the grace that God supplies. And so let's turn our attention to the text as we seek God's grace to truly live for him. In Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. 
But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Living for Christ means living as Christ, even in the face of hostility, according to the grace that God supplies. Now, I want to look at that statement in three parts so that we can deal with each of those common lies, right? That living for Christ is self-defined, that I will never have to face what Jesus faced, and that if I did, I would be a horrible witness. So first, living for Christ means living as Christ. Have you ever met a wannabe. You know, somebody who sort of dresses the part, acts the part, sort of talks the part, but you know deep down they're not really what they claim that they are, right? You ever met one of those guys, you know, just like, like the, the kid in high school that used to dress all gangster, you know, but he was really from an, an upper yuppie middle class family, and he dressed that way, kind of talked that way because he liked listening to the notorious B.I.G., Right? I know I'm dating myself here. Or, or, or the skater punk that doesn't have the first idea how to skate, right? Or just say hypothetically, you come up to a guy and he says, you know what, my life is baseball. And immediately you're suspicious of this fact because he's wearing a Cardinals shirt, but he has a Cubs hat on. And so you say, okay, well, you know, tell me, what, what's your favorite team? And he says, the Patriots. No, no, I mean the Yankees. So your confusion really begins to grow. Start scratching your head. Okay, well, all right. Um, you know, did you ever play ball as a kid? Well, no, no, I, I was never allowed to play. I, I had to play in band, you know, but, but baseball is my life now. Okay, well, who's your favorite player for the Yankees? Well, Derek Jeter's my favorite player. I'm like, okay, well, you know, Derek Jeter's a great player, just retired in 2014. Okay, I could see why you would select him. I was kind of thinking of a current player, but, but that's okay. What about the Cardinals? I saw you had a Cardinals shirt on. Who's your, who's your favorite current player for the Cardinals? Uh, Albert Pujols. Okay, well, you know, you know, Albert was traded five years ago to the Angels, right? So, okay, okay, let, let's just make it easy. What's your favorite all-time Cubs player, right? Favorite player for the Cubs for all time. He has to think about it for a little while, just like we all do, right? And he says, Harry Carey. Of course, I agree with him there, right? <laughs> you start talking about the strategy of the game. So let's talk about the game. And his strategy is about the length of, okay, you got to hit the ball and you run to first and not to third. Like, all right. Of course, you know, he knows you love baseball. You've been talking to guys. He knows that you, you guys are going to get together, going to throw the ball around, try to get a game going. So you're like, you invite him along. Just grab your gear. Let's meet out at the field, right? And so he shows up out there at the field, and he's got all his gear. Half of it still has tags on it, and the glove has never been oiled. He can't even close it, right? And so you're like, okay, buddy, why, why don't you just go ahead and take right, okay? Take right field. 
And so he grabs his first baseman's mitt and he runs straight out to left. Now, I'm, I'm obviously not talking about any real person. I tried to make that overtly so, except for the, the whole Cubs bit, right? But, you know, we, we can all have this tendency to be wannabes, to sort of pretend that we're something that we're not. It's easy for us to say that we live for Christ, that Christ is my life, but in reality, we're like that baseball wannabe. We buy books that we don't read, our Bibles collect dust on the shelf, but they still have that new leather smell, right? We, we get really caught up in, in following all the hype and the latest celebrity pastors and, and all the drama that's taking place there. Oh, do you see that Mark Driscoll's now going down to Arizona and blah, 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 or New Mexico or wherever it is. And Mark Chandler, he's so funny. Ha, ha, ha. It's Matt Chandler, by the way, but I said Mark. Uh, you know, but we're not a part of a local church, we're not even devoting ourselves to what the Lord would have us devote to, or, or we define living for Christ by our feelings, by our wants, by our worship experiences, or just simply because of the fact that I say so. But that's not the case with Stephen. Luke throws the spotlight on Stephen because here's a man that lives for Christ and we know without a doubt that he lives for Christ because he lives like Christ. Last week, we saw that the church affirmed Stephen as a man of good repute. He's a man of good reputation. He's, he's above reproach. He's full of the Spirit and of wisdom. In, in verse 5, he's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was appointed by the apostles and affirmed by the church for this task of overseeing this ministry of the daily distribution because he was already doing that. And no doubt he was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers that we read about back in chapter 2. And we can be sure of this even in the way that he answers the council in chapter 7. Here is a man with deep conviction. He has hidden the word in his heart. He speaks it. He lives it. And he's even willing to die for the sake of Christ and for his church, just like Jesus did. Here in our passage, he's described in verse 8 as full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 10, speaking with all wisdom and the Spirit so that no one could withstand his message. Now, if you simply heard that description as characterizing someone in the Bible, you didn't know the name, but just heard the description, full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people, speaking with wisdom and the Spirit so that no one could withstand his message, who would you think that they were speaking of? Yeah, you might point to one of the apostles, you might point to Moses, but more than likely you're going to say just what I heard you say. Jesus. This sounds like Jesus. And it's interesting to know that Stephen is doing all of the same things that the apostles were doing. He's ministering to the body. He's preaching and teaching with all wisdom, full of the Spirit. He's even doing great signs and wonders. And, and aside from Barnabas and Philip, he's the only other non-apostle who Luke records performing miracles. He's doing good just as Jesus and the apostles did good. He, too, will stand before the council just as they did, and yet he's not an apostle. 
Sure, he was one of the seven that was chosen to serve, but he's not an apostle. And yet he's doing everything that the apostles were doing. He's living as they lived and as Christ lived. I mean, the only difference between Stephen and the apostles was that he had not been with Christ from the beginning. He was a Hellenized Jew, right? A Greek-speaking Jew and therefore not a, an official representative of the true Israel, right? And he was not chosen by Christ to share in this allotment in the ministry of an apostle. Twelve apostles for the twelve tribes of Israel. And that ought to tell us a couple of things. I mean, it ought to tell us that, well, you know, that, that title, apostle, is not an ongoing office of the church because if Stephen was an apostle, well, then who can be, right? No, it was very specific in why they selected them. And two, just because you're not an apostle, it doesn't mean you aren't called to live as they lived. Because here's Stephen, and there will be Philip, and there will be Barnabas, and there will be many, many others who devote themselves to the very same things regardless of the title. The point of living for Christ is not about a title, but living as Christ. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Stephen is living for Christ. He's following his example, his character, his activities, his heart. He's devoting himself to all of the same things that Jesus devoted himself to. He's obeying Christ's command to go and make disciples, helping them to reach maturity in Christ, knowing that as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and so be wise as serpents, and innocent as doves. Verse 10 said that they could not withstand his wisdom. And verse 15 says that his face was like the face of an angel. Humble, innocent, holy, glorious. Luke throws the spotlight on Stephen, not so that we would venerate Stephen as some heroic saint, Look at Stephen, he's so special. Stephen's in the Bible. I'm not going to be in the Bible. I don't have to be like Stephen. That's not the point. Luke throws the spotlight on Stephen so that we would learn from him what it means to live for Christ. You see, Jesus taught the apostles what it means to follow him, what it means to live for Christ. The apostles are now teaching others what it means to follow Christ, what it means to live for Christ. And now we have men like Stephen and Philip, who are those that have been taught by the apostles, who are now teaching others what it means to follow Christ, what it means to live for Christ. This is what it means to live for Jesus, to bear witness to Christ, to live for him, to speak for him, and if necessary, even to die for him. But living for Christ is living as Christ so that others can see Christ in you. I mean, when you look at Stephen, this account that's mentioned here, can you not see Christ? And Luke tells us this, not so that we would worship Stephen, but so that we would have yet another example of what it truly means to live for Jesus. 
And friends, we need this today more than ever before. The lie is that I can live for Christ in whatever way I want. That I can define it to mean whatever I want it to mean. That I can live for whatever I want and still live for Christ. That I can imitate whoever or whatever I want and still say that I live for Christ. It doesn't really matter who or what I actually image as long as I say that I live for Christ Well, friends, the only way that that can be true, the only way that you can prove that you live for Christ is if people can see that you live as Christ. Anything else, you're just lying to yourself. It's not hard to look at the apostles and say the apostles lived for Christ. It's not hard to look at Stephen and say Stephen lived for Christ. But what about you? I mean, if somebody looked at you, they said, that person lives for Christ. Can you honestly say that? Humble, innocent, servant-hearted, of good repute, full of grace, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. It's just going off of the description that, that Luke says of Stephen here. Now, I don't say this to make you feel bad. And I don't say this so that you will condemn yourself because you are not Stephen. The point is not to be Stephen. Okay? I say this so that we do not continue to lie to ourselves. To deceive ourselves into thinking that we live for Christ when in reality we live for something else. That's the lie of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's not create for ourselves some kind of double standard. Like, okay, here's what living for Christ means for the apostles and means for Stephen, but, but I also live for Christ, and that's way over here. There's a range of meanings in what it means to live for Christ. Let's stop fooling ourselves into thinking that as long as I bear witness to Christ on occasion with my words, that it doesn't matter how I live as if our lives do not affect our witness. But friends, more than anything, let's just stop pretending. Let's be honest. Let's be real with ourselves here, right? Let's stop living as the wannabe and actually get in the game. Not that you have to be the best person on the field, but that you are genuine and earnest and honest and desirous and well-meaning and you strive hard after living for Christ. That's the point. That's the takeaway. To put off the lie and to truly begin to live for Jesus. And So living for Christ means living as Christ. But second... We do that even in the face of hostility. Because it's one thing, let's face it, and we know this, right? It's one thing to live for Christ when things are going really well. It's easy to live for Jesus at that point, but what happens when opposition arises? When people are getting mad at you, when they're calling names and laughing at you, when they're mocking you, when they're they're threatening you, what do you do then? I mean, they're speaking all kinds of evil against you, slandering you, hating you. I tell you what I want to do. I want to fight back. I mean, I'm just being honest with myself, right? 
being honest with you, I, I want to fight them, right? You drag me before the council, you start bearing false witness against me, and the only face of an angel that my face is going to resemble is that of a fallen one. I'm going to start looking like Donald Trump, right? Getting all red-faced, calling everybody liars. You're a big liar. Believe me. Okay, I believe you because you called me a liar. Absolutely. Okay, whatever. Anyway. But friends, that's what I would do if I was left to my own strength. Left to my own strength because I'm living for myself and not for Christ. But not Stephen. Stephen, he's, he's just out there, and what's he doing? He's doing great signs and wonders. I mean, he's doing things that people ought to like. I mean, the guy ought to like him, but yet it says in verse 9 that then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, unlike the one temple, there were many synagogues within Jerusalem. You see, a, a synagogue is a place not for ritual sacrifice like the temple was, but a place of instruction of the law, of worship, of prayer, of reading of Scripture. So they would get together regularly there and devote themselves. It was much like a church is today. And so the closest modern-day comparison would be to say that the temple is to the Vatican City as the synagogue is to the church right? The local church. It's the only way I can find a modern example. Not that we should go to the Vatican City or anything. But in many ways, the synagogue was the very center of community life. And this synagogue was, was specifically for Hellenized Jews, for, for Greek-speaking Jews who happened to either be freedmen which means that they were either former slaves or they were the family of former slaves, or they were from these regions of Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and Asia. Now, I point this out because of this simple fact. These were Stephen's people. These were Hellenized Jews, just like Stephen was a Hellenized Jew. This may have very well been the synagogue that Stephen went to before he came to Christ. So he knows these people. And these, these are the people that he used to sit with, that he would worship with, that he would pray with, that he would receive instruction from the law with, and they're now disputing him. More than likely, they're angry because this man who was once one of them is now, not only has he left their way of life, their faith, their understanding, their, their government, their everything, but now he's leading other people, even widows, away from their faith, their way of life to follow this other way. And they're not disputing him because he's doing great signs and wonders. Like they're just a little jealous because he can perform miracles. Because nobody has a problem if all you're doing is healing people and filling people's bellies, right? Huge crowds were drawn to follow after Jesus when he was doing that very thing, right? You had these huge number that following Jesus across the lake because the day before he fed 5,000. And what did he say to him? He said, you're only following me because I filled your belly. But let me tell you something. I am the bread. I'm the living bread. You got to eat my body and drink my blood. And they're like, you're a freak. And they left. 
or with the apostles in chapter 5, we see that people are coming together from all over so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them. They got no problem with the fact that they're doing great signs and wonders. But if you start preaching Christ, then they hate you. This was a theological disagreement. Stephen, you were one of us. You were taught all of the same things that we were taught. How could you follow this Jesus? But verse 10 says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so, what did they do? Agreeing to disagree, they shook hands and they parted ways. No. When they couldn't convince Stephen to give up Christ... And in fact, when other people were coming to Christ because of Stephen and the wisdom with which he was speaking, it says there in verse 11 that then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Friends, when people hate the message of Christ, the very one that we live for, it doesn't matter how Christ-like you are doesn't matter how nice. It doesn't matter how friendly. It doesn't matter how wise or how gracious or how kind or how spirit-filled. Even if you were to heal people in his name. If you preach and you live for Christ, they will oppose you. And so, they had moved from a theological dispute to now secretly instigating men who now point the finger at Stephen and accuse him of blasphemy. And it's interesting that they say he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They put Moses first, right? Because he's going against their traditions, their customs, and they're more concerned about that over and above what God actually taught of the coming salvation of the Christ. They were less concerned to see how God was fulfilling all of his purposes and promises in Jesus and more concerned that things did not change, that they could keep their traditions, their comforts, what they've become accustomed to. And so what do they do? They deliberately distort his message, and misrepresent what they heard from him. They go on the attack. They malign his message and his character. They say he's he's blasphemous. This is a smear campaign. He's speaking words against Moses and God, when in truth, he is speaking the fulfillment of all that they had prophesied and all that they had promised. You know, Christians have been called many, many things throughout the history of the church. The Romans twisted and maligned the Christian faith by calling Christians cannibals because they supposedly ate the body and blood of infants born in mangers. Often house churches would share food together in a potluck fellowship that they called a love feast. And so opponents would say, you know what? They're indulging in revelry and orgies because it's a love feast. Christians have even been called atheists. This is my favorite, right? Been called atheists. And the reason why they're called atheists is not because they were worshiping God, but because they weren't praying to graven images. You have no visible gods. So clearly you're an atheist. 
You see, if they can't stop the message, they will malign the character of the messenger and distort and twist the message. And if that doesn't work, they will rally support to their cause. In this case, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes against him. They're trying to turn as many people as they could against Stephen. And once that mob had been stirred, they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And once they gathered enough support from the culture, they will pursue legal action against those who live for Christ. Verse 13 tells us that they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so these false witnesses who accuse Stephen of, or false witnesses who accuse Stephen of attacking their very way of life, their very existence, their religion, their government, their temple, which is also their main form of economic growth, their values, their culture, you name it. Because they understand that coming to Christ, coming to this way, changes everything. Absolutely everything. And yet here you have all of these people and they're running after it. They're they're coming to Christ in droves. Thousands upon thousands are now coming and following Christ. So much so that now even, even some of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. This is turning everything up on end. We're, we're at risk of losing our livelihood, losing our nation. Everything is, is at risk. Jesus is overturning the world. That's how great a threat Jesus is to their way of life. But friends, it's not just their way of life. It's every single person's way of life. This is what Jesus does. And so, they will use any means necessary to stop it, even bearing false witness, because let's face it, the end justifies the means, at least they thought. And so, of course... There's still one more step that they are about to take. Just like Jesus, they will condemn Stephen to death. Now there's a danger for us here when we come to this passage. Because we are so far removed in time, in culture, in geography, and let's be totally honest, comfort, that we can read this as simply a story. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And though perhaps we can see the rise in hostility being described here in our own culture today, we still read it as passive onlookers. Oh, you know, I can kind of see that happening today. Let me go back to eating my sandwich. Let me just busy myself with all my other stuff and just ignore the fact that this is happening. I wonder how many of us were motivated by just even the prayer for his voice in South Sudan. How many of our hearts were stirred or how many of us just sat here just flatly? Friends, Luke is not writing to a bunch of comfortable, complacent American Christians. He's writing to Christians who had been and who would be persecuted. He's writing this to warn them what 
to expect. The theological disagreements against Christ will grow into secret efforts to malign the message and the character of the messenger. They will rally support against Christ. They will pursue legal action. They will even set up false witnesses and condemn you to death. But you are still to live for Christ even in the face of all of these growing hostilities, even if these things are happening to you. This is for you. And so here's what it looks like to live for Christ even in the face of this mounting hostility. Now this doesn't mean that we just kind of go on blindly, just kind of take it, you know, kind of bear our backs to the whipping, right, whatever comes along. I mean, Stephen disputed with them, but he did so in a way as to not defend himself or his way of life, but to win them to Christ, And verse 15 tells us that he did so in a way that his face was like the face of an angel. He was innocent, and they could see it even as they condemned him. Stephen is a reflection of Christ as he faced opposition. And it's interesting to point out that one scholar, Ben Witherington, identifies no less than 10 similarities between Jesus and Stephen in their arrest, in their betrayal, in their death. Both are put on trial before the same Sanhedrin. Both are questioned by the same high priest. Both were accused by false witnesses. Both were done in by reference to the destruction of the temple. Both are... Make, of these accusations are in reference to this quote, temple made with hands. Both speak of the Son of Man. Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, right? And Stephen says, behold, he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God in the heavens. Both are charged with blasphemy. Both of them committed their spirits. Jesus to the Father And Stephen to the son. Both while dying cried out with a loud shout. And both will intercede for the forgiveness of their murderers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Friends, these are not coincidences. Stephen is living out the suffering and death of Jesus. He's reflecting the very heart of Christ in the face of such overwhelming hostility. Stephen walked the path that Jesus walked. He faced the same hostility that Jesus had to face. The account of his martyrdom was to show us that we may actually be called to walk down the same road that Jesus walked to face what he had to face, to suffer in the way that he had to suffer. But no one goes into thinking that. No one goes in thinking, you know what, I might actually have to pay a greater price than I would like. You see, we've, we've bought into the lie that I will never have to face what Jesus faced. That life will not be that unfair that I will not be so horribly misunderstood 
that I might do good, that I might speak truth, that I might be wise and be completely innocent in the matter and yet still have to suffer and die for it. Surely Christ won't call me to that. Or maybe we think to ourselves, you know what, I, I at least I'll live to see my comeuppance, right? I'll live long enough to see the enemies of Christ being defeated, that though they may win some battles, I'm sure that I will not die until I have seen Christ gain victory over them. Well, friends, Stephen didn't. But you know what Stephen saw? He saw the Son of Man in the heavens standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's far better. There's this reoccurring message throughout the New Testament. Plays itself out over and over and over again in a thousand different ways. Do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But endure them. Don't fall away. Don't shrink back. Don't fear. Don't be ashamed. Friends, we love a suffering Savior. We worship a crucified Christ. And so don't be surprised if the Lord might call you to do the same. Because the way to truly live is to die. Maybe not as a martyr, but dying to self so that we might live for Christ. And so, how will we respond when we see increasing hostility towards the things that the Bible teaches? As we see it in our day already, it's there, it's happening. How will we respond when the truths of Scripture that, that are so clear, so beautiful, so precious, so sure, so life-giving are rejected, are maligned, or distorted? When they scoff at us and they laugh at us at, by what we hold dear, how will we respond when the world hates us? I mean, do we bury our heads in the sand and just pray, Lord Jesus, come? Do we turn around and just in raging discontent say, forget that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? No. We respond in certain, joyful resolution that when reviled, we will not revile in turn. That though we are hated, we will continue to love that we will not stop serving, and we will not stop smiling, and we will not stop singing, and we will not stop speaking the truth, even if they're unwilling to hear. Because God loves us in Christ. We will continue to bear witness to Christ by living for and speaking for and if necessary, dying for Christ. And friends, if that seems too good to be true, it is if we're relying upon our own power. And that brings us to the third lie and to the third point. 
The lie is that if I do have to face what Jesus faced, I will be horrible at it. I will fail. It will not go well. The truth is that living for Christ means living as Christ, even in the face of hostility, third, according to the grace that God supplies. It's easy to look at Stephen and to say, you know what, I I can never do that. This is Stephen. Stephen's in the Bible. I'm not like that. I can never be like that. And friends, that's half true. You could never do that. And neither could Stephen. You see, Stephen was a sinner just like you and me. Stephen lived for himself just like you and I, so prone to live for ourselves. Stephen had rebelled against God. Stephen had rejected God, tried to live for himself as if this is my world and I'm God, just like you and me. Stephen was once dead enslaved and condemned by his sin under the just and holy wrath of God. It was while Stephen was a sinner that God loved him and sent his son to live a perfect life on his behalf, life that he could never live, and to give up that life by dying on a cross for sin. While Stephen was still a sinner, Jesus literally rose from the grave Right During his lifetime, to prove that God's wrath against sin, like even Stephen's sin, had been satisfied, and that there is the promise of new life, being a changed person, to live forever with God in him. And all of that is available if you would repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. Not that you get to take credit or the glory, just say, like, look at me, I'm so holy, but just the opposite, I'm not holy. I need the righteousness of another. That's what Stephen saw. That's what Stephen did. That's why he obeyed by being baptized to show that he had received Christ's righteousness and wants to be identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. Stephen was changed forever because God, the Holy Spirit, had opened his eyes and ears to see the glory of Christ and to hear the good news. And it changed him. Stephen was full of faith because God had filled him with grace, with power, and with the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was faithful even to the end because God gave him the power to do so. It's the same faith, the same power, the same wisdom, the same spirit that he gives to every single one of us. only we would repent and believe. Friends, you need to understand something about Scripture. There is one hero and only one hero in the Bible, and that is God. God takes messed up people just like you and me and does amazing things through them for his glory, for their good, and for our joy in him, not so that we can worship and venerate and honor them. Look at Stephen but so that we would look at God. Back in verse 3, the reason why Stephen was of good repute and worthy of commendation by the whole church was that he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Stephen didn't fill himself with the Holy Spirit. 
God did. The Holy Spirit was applying the truth of God's word to his heart, which made him wise. Verse 5, Stephen is described as a man full of faith, but the reason why he was full of faith was because he was full of the Spirit. Again, he did not do that. The Holy Spirit was at work to increase his faith. In verse 8, it describes him as full of grace and power. But this is not his grace and power. He's doing signs and wonders like only God can do because God was the one who was doing them, not him. In verse 10, his disputers could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking because he was speaking wisely as he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, his face shone like the face of an angel. Now, we don't take this too literally, right? Like he was suddenly levitating and glowing and all of that, right? But it ought to make us think of two people. It ought to make us think of Moses, whose face shone with the glory of God. And it ought to make us think of Jesus, who in his transfiguration became radiant, right? Luke is intentional to put Stephen right in line with the two of them, right? But the, the point was not that his face shone, right? Because how do you make your face like the face of an angel's? Everything about that, how, how, how would you do that? Put on a lot of moisturizer, you know? Cleanly shave, I don't know, you know, get a, a tinsel halo put over your head. I, you can't do that. This is God's work. This was a supernatural work that Stephen, he wasn't seething in anger, and he wasn't shivering in fear. He was gentle, he was confident, he was at peace, and they could see it in his face. They looked at his face and they saw it even as they were accusing him and condemning him and stoning him. And they knew it. As a sheep before its shearers is silent. And so every time that Stephen is actually described in this passage, you cannot help but see that God was right there in every single instance doing this work in him, strengthening him in power to do what God had called him to do. He did not do it by his own ability, ever. Luke presents Stephen as a model of a faithful witness, someone who lives as Jesus even in the face of hostility because God was giving him grace to do that very thing. His faith was tested and he passed the test and not only did he pass the test, he passed it with flying colors because the Holy Spirit was giving him strength to do so. Friends, none of us will be as holy as Jesus. But we can be faithful to Jesus. God will never look at any one of us and say, wow, you're holy. You're holy enough that you have earned my love. No, that love is given because God is exceedingly gracious. You can't do that. But by God's grace, you can be a faithful witness to Jesus. 
And that's what Luke wants us to see in Stephen. Not a hero, but the fact that God gives us the grace to truly live for Christ no matter what. The most important thing about Stephen is not that he was a prophet, that he was a great preacher, that he was a miracle worker, or even the first martyr of the church. The greatest thing about Stephen is that he is a fulfillment of the promise of Luke 21, verses 12 through 18. When Jesus said to his disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. He said, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head will perish. Friends, the way forward in all of this is not to worry, it's not to doubt, say to ourselves, you know, I can, I can never, ever do that, or to focus on yourself and, and to try to run out all of these scenarios in your mind. Well, you know, what would happen if a guy ran in here with a gun and pointed at me? What would I do? You can't plan for it. It's to trust and to believe that God's grace is sufficient for the day. That great is thy faithfulness. The way to live for Jesus then, when standing face to face with your accusers, is to stand faithful, to live for Jesus now. To know that faithfulness today will lead to faithfulness tomorrow. It's not to be so consumed with yourself. Just keep thinking about yourself. Oh, I can never do that. I, 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 can never, I, I, I can never face that kind of accusation, that sort of false witness. I, I can never give, like, give glory to, to Christ and, and to forgive people as they were stoning me to death. I could never endure cancer to that degree while giving glory to God. I could never even do what Joe and Jamie do every single day in caring for Sawyer. I would lose my mind I can never do that. The problem is you're focusing on what you can do. You can't. You never could. Get over it. It's to meditate upon Christ. To look to him and not to yourself. If you want to see the Son of Man in the heavens standing at the right hand of God on that day, then the key is to strive to behold the glory of Christ each and every day. 
to love him, to worship him, to behold him, to marvel at him. So much so that when it actually comes to that day, you can, like so many martyrs before us, say, he has been faithful to me. So how could I now deny him? And God will give you strength and courage that is not of yourself. And you will know it. This is not of me. This is all of grace. That's what it means to live for Christ. To live as Christ, even in the face of hostility, according to the grace that God supplies. And so let's approach the throne of grace now that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for these words. And Lord, I pray that it would come in power and in deep conviction. That we would not walk out of here thinking Stephen is, is so great. Not that we don't value and appreciate his testimony. Not that we don't think that he is a man who is worthy of our respect. But that, that he would cause us to look to Christ. That we would rejoice in the grace that we've been given. It is sufficient to make sinful men faithful that helps us to walk in such a way as that we actually reflect Jesus to other people, even when we are being persecuted. Not because of anything that we can do in our own power, but just because we can't, and yet you are faithful. You are sufficient. Your grace is abundant. And if we would just lean on you and depend on you and look to Christ... We could live for him. Father, I pray that this would not lead us to fear, to cower, to self-condemn, but to look to Jesus, to remember his life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, and to bear witness to that with our lives and with our words and even in our deaths, until he comes again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.